Well, if you would, uh, open up your physical Bible or your Bible on your smartphone um, to 1 John chapter 5. We use the English Standard Version here at Grace Presbyterian Church. That's the ESV. Um, and sometimes it's good just to have the Bible out in front of you. Uh, I know the text is going to come up on the screen, but anyway. Um, 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Now, when you hear the word victory, what comes to mind? Maybe uh, March Madness and your favorite basketball team. Mine's not in it this year, by the way. I'm pretty certain of that. Uh, maybe a good grade on an exam. Maybe a fully funded emergency account. Go Dave Ramsey, right? Uh, life is all about victories, big and small. In our passage today, John helps us to examine the victories that we seek and to put into perspective which victories matter and which don't. And he helps us to see an amazing truth that changes you forever, the truth that God has won the greatest cosmic victory ever, and it's yours, yours. God's victory isn't just for you as well. It is actually, as we shall see, in you. What on earth am I talking about? Well, let's read 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you that John was there in that upper room with you, Jesus, to hear you talk about the kingdom to come and to hear you say, I have overcome the world. What does that mean for us? Help us to appropriate these truths. Help us by your spirit to delight in what you have done in this victory. May it be ours and may we enjoy it, we pray. Amen. You know, all of life can be boiled down to this, victory. Life is a pursuit of victory. It's why you put on your tennis shoes for a run. It's why you swipe right and not left. It's why you put pills into your mouth and why you scream at the TV. And even those who kill themselves are pursuing victory. All of life is a pursuit of victory. But the problem with our pursuit of victory is this. Victories that this world offers us fall short. They either never deliver on the happiness we thought they would, right? <laughs> or if they do satisfy, it's only for a season, and, and then it's over, and we're on to something else. It's true, is it not? Every victory that you and I experience accomplishes very little in the scheme of things. 
You know, I still have a box of dusty trophies in my basement from some victories I had years ago when I raced motorcycles. Why, why do I still have this box? I don't know. I'm certainly not going to display them on my family room shelves, am I? That would be, like, silly. Hey, there's that one I got up in Michigan. Like, I mean, come on. How silly is that? Now, those victories were exhilarating in the moment, but in the scheme of things, they're pretty much meaningless. I'm just glad I somehow survived. <laughs> See, the truth is, there isn't any worldly victory that you achieve in your lifetime that isn't, in the end, destroyed by your death. Now, no one enjoys talking about it. That's probably why you're like, really? I came to church to be happy. Why are we talking about this stuff? Nobody, nobody enjoys thinking about it, but underneath the surface, death haunts us because it renders our victories meaningless. Woody Allen, whom I think you most know, uh, typifies this terror. Yeah, at times he kind of jokes about it. He once says, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But also Woody Allen is filled with dread. In an Esquire magazine article, he said, listen, the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It is absolutely stupefying in its terror and listen, and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. Before you accuse me of morbidity, I'd like to say we're going somewhere with this. See, the gospel changes all things in this regard. This is why John is, this is what John is pointing to when he writes in verse 4. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. There is a victory outside that God has won, and it's thoroughly satisfying, and it lasts forever. And what John is telling us is that we actually begin to live out this victory now. See, here's the amazing thing. God, God has won this cosmic, soul-satisfying, never-ending victory. And you know what he's done with it? You're going to think I'm crazy, all right? But God has birthed this victory into his people, every one of us, birthed it into us. You heard me right. Listen, just as the Holy Spirit birthed the eternal Son of God into the womb of Mary, so too God, by this very same Holy Spirit, has birthed us anew. We are new creatures. And he has implanted in us this victory. And so the gospel isn't, look at Jesus over there and applaud him from a distance. Look at what God has done over there. No, amazingly, God, listen, who desires far more for us than we can ever think or imagine, he implants his cosmic, universe-changing, life-transforming, love-producing victory in us. This entire letter is about that, God-producing in us, this new birth. We see it three times in our text, right? And 11 times in this short letter, John speaks of being born of God. And so what we see in this passage, and here's the big idea we're going to explore this morning, is this. In giving us new birth, God implants in us his victory, which overcomes the world. We're going to look at this this morning in two, two areas. First, we're going to look at the evidence 
And then we're going to look at the overcoming, the evidence and the overcoming. First, the evidence. Uh, John gives us four pieces of evidence that this new birth has come into you. And, and really, he's kind of restating things he's already said in his letter, but he puts it all very succinctly. So we're going to look at them. First, first, this is the first evidence is this. New birth produces faith in Christ, or belief, or trust, or whatever you want to call it. Now, it's not the other way around. Some Christians wrongly believe that first you believe in Jesus, and then you get the new birth. But Scripture does not support that, including our text that we have before us. You see, the grammar of our text doesn't allow for that. In verse 1, what do we read? Everyone who believes, the word believe in the Greek is in the present tense, which signifies an ongoing reality. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, has been. This is in the perfect tense. It signifies a one-time event that has continuing reality. In, in a, in, it's something in the past that now brings forward into the future. Now, this new birth, what we see here is the new birth comes first, and then comes faith. Or as John Stott explains it, he says the grammar shows clearly that believing is the consequence, not the cause, of the new birth. It's the consequence, not the cause. Now, this is what our Lord Jesus taught, right? In John chapter 6, twice in that chapter, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless what? Unless the Father enables him. Now, how does the Father enable you to believe? By producing this victory of new birth in you. It's why Jesus told Nicodemus, what? That no one can even see or even want to enter the kingdom of God until what takes place? A new birth. Jesus said, you must be born again, Nicodemus, before you can enter the kingdom. Now, here's the deal. Instead of pushing back on this truth, how about we, we instead stand in awe and wonder of our God who gives us new birth so that we can come to believe. And what is it that we believe? We believe that Jesus really truly is the Son of God, that he came in the flesh for us and he died and he rose again. All this is for God's glory. So the first piece of evidence is that you, have been, that you have been born of God is that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, sent to redeem you. Now, there's a second piece of evidence that this new birth is upon you, and that it's because the new birth produces in us love for God. Think it through. Do not babies grow up to love their daddies? Of course, it's assuming that uh, the dad isn't a jerk and the kids aren't yet teenagers. Um, but children naturally love their dads. Those who have been begotten love the father who has begotten them. My friends, this isn't advanced psychology 401. This is basic human experience. And yet so many people in the world do not love God. Oh, they might say, I believe in God, but they do not love God. And there's a huge difference. What John is explaining is, is really something simple. He says, if you have been born of God, you will love God, your heavenly Father. And not just like him or appreciate him, but love him. So the question before you this morning is, do you, do you love God? 
Now, I'm not saying, as I asked myself that same question this week, I'm not saying that we won't at times be embarrassed by how unappreciative and childlike our love of God is at times. But what John is saying is that this new birth that God has given us, it really truly produces in us genuine love for the Father. The third piece of evidence that this new birth is upon you is that it produces love for God's children. Now, this can be a little harder one, right? We all want to love God, but it's really hard to love each other. All right, okay, it's not just me. Okay, maybe it is just me. You know, one thing that delights me as a, a father is that my daughters love each other. They love each other. Now, I'm not saying they, they aren't, that, that they're always loving, uh, but when push comes to shove, they love each other. And this bond will grow stronger as the years go by. John is saying to us here, and this is where we really need to be challenged, is that, that the evidence of this new birth in you is not just love for God, but love for God's other children. This is what we see in verse 1. In the very same breath, John says, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Process this challenging thought, my friends. Everyone who has been born of God loves whoever else has been born of God. Everyone else. Now, a couple quick observations. First, if you have been born of God, well, hello, you are not an only child. You are not alone. You are part of a family. Yeah, many times it's dysfunctional. Many times people say things that hurt you. Perhaps even I as your pastor has hurt you or offend you at some point in time. I'm sorry for that. But we, we are a family. We are the body of the Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the church. We've all experienced this one and same new birth. Which means that just as God is patiently working his victory of grace in your life, and just as you are on a slow path of sanctification, I've never seen a Christian grow in sanctification fast. It's never happens, okay? So too, millions of others who belong to Christ are going through the same thing, your brothers and sisters. And so at the end of the day, we are to love one another. Not like, not put up with, not ignore unless needed, but love. And the second point is this, we don't pick and choose which brothers and sisters we will love. John writes, we love whoever has been born of him. Whoever challenging, right? Challenges me. I don't do that well. Perhaps later as we come to the Lord's Supper or as you meditate at home, take time to consider, is there any brother or sister in Christ that you need to forgive, that you need to love? If you've had this new birth, this is your calling and this would be your desire. The last evidence John gives us of this new birth is what? Joyful obedience. Those words don't seem like they should go together, but for the child of God, they do. We see joyful obedience in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not 
burdensome. People who have not been born again, excuse me, people who have been born again love the commandments of God. But before this new birth, before God gives you this birth, is it not true his commands are burdensome? And you respond in one of two different ways. One is licentiousness and the other is legalism. Now, the word licentious or licentiousness should be in your vocabulary. If it's not, um, here's what it is. Licentiousness is when you throw off the burden of the law. It's not for me, you say, my guy just wants me to be happy. And all these rules, they just get in the way of my own personal happiness. And by, well, they're a burden. The law of God can only weigh you down. So you give yourself license not to obey it. That's licentiousness. But then there's also legalism. Legalists pick up the law. And though it's heavy, the legalist believes he or she can actually do it. Just watch me. Watch me do it. Oh, and the word victory is the word Nike. Just do it, right? Watch me have this victory. Jesus interacted with a lot of legalists in his day, did he not? The law was a burden. They thought they could carry. They didn't need Christ. But the problem with legalists is that they cannot see how pitiful they really are. See, as soon as you think you can keep the laws of God, you've proven yourself to be prideful, which is a sin. So there you go. But the other problem of legalism is that legalists place the burdens on others. Maybe you're here today and, and you think Christianity is a, you've experienced like some Christians that just want to put all these burdens on you. Or perhaps you just feel like being a Christian is about all these laws you got to do in order to make God happy. Well, the legalists tend to put burdens on others. That is what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 23 when he said, speaking of them, he said, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Hypocrites. The legalists in Jesus' day placed the heavy burdens of religious rules upon the shoulders of others, and they judged them. Oh, you, you rescued your neighbor's sheep? Huh, on the Sabbath? Hmm, that's too bad. Oh, you don't, you don't tithe on your dill and your cumin? Wow, that's too bad. When it comes to the commands of God, the tendency is, is either, listen, it's either towards licentiousness or legalism. And either way, the commands of God are a burden. But there is another way, the way of Jesus that he, that he speaks of in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. The imagery is of an, two oxen in the field, each having a yoke that makes the two move as one. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Listen, because I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The way of the gospel is to yoke your life, to yoke yourself to Christ. And then he with you carries the burdens including the law, and this produces rest. 
Listen, to believe in Christ is to trust in him, to trust that, that, it, that, to trust that you have given to Christ all of your failings with regards to the law, and you've let him pay the penalty for them on the cross. Jesus takes our death and gives us eternal life as a gift from God. The, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so the commandments of God are no longer a law that threatens. It is no longer a law that condemns. It is a law that invigorates. It is, it's a law that, that challenges. It's, it's a law that, that motivates. In his commentary on 1 John, William Barclay uh, had this story. It's about a boy who's on his way to school. This is in the days before transportation and those yellow buses. And this boy is carrying someone on his back, someone smaller than himself, someone who's unable to walk. And a person says to the boy, he says, do you carry him to school every day? And the, yes, says the boy. That's a heavy burden for you to carry. Oh, he's no burden. He's my brother. That's a picture of, of joyful obedience. The obedience of a child of God to the commandments of God is, is not something burdensome. And to those of you here who have this new birth, you know what I'm talking about. Not that you do the commands well, but you know they're not a burden. You want to do them. For God is your heavenly Father. So that's the evidence. There's four realities that we see here. This new birth produces belief in Christ, love for God, love for God's children, and joyful obedience. And John wants his people to recognize that this is me. I am, I'm part of this new birth. And why does he do that? So he can get to the next part. So he shows them the evidence, and then now he gives them the encouragement. That's what we see in verses 4 and 5. He, John encourages those who read this letter. Take a second to think through those first Christians in, in A.D. 100. <laughs> Everywhere they went, they were judged and they were ridiculed. There was even a rumor spreading around that they were cannibals. See, they gathered on Sunday to eat the body of Jesus. Christians were kicked out of the local trade guilds because some of the laws of the guilds conflicted with the law of God. And in the book of Acts, Luke tells us that wherever Christianity spread, people stopped buying those expensive silver idols, and the economy suffered, and the Christians were to blame. So as you can imagine, the thoughts going through the minds of these brothers and sisters of ours from years ago, as they're experiencing all this hardship, they're thinking what? Where is the victory? Where? My newfound love for Christ has made my circumstances worse, not better. And we Christians alive today need encouragement too. We walk this earth, and yes, there's joy, there's happiness, there's great things that we get to experience, but, but we also experience all sorts of hardships and trials. And we do the right thing, and we get fired. Or we promote Christian morality, and we get shamed for it. Or we invite 10 people to Christianity Explored and not a single one comes. And in fact, even one of them laughs at you for the invitation. And so is it not true? We can survey our life 
our lives and our circumstances and say, if this is victory, then I'd sure hate to experience defeat. So John writes to encourage. He says to us, if you have experienced this new birth, then the victory of God belongs to you. And it's a huge victory. Let's consider the scale. In verse 4 and 5, we read of this victory. For everyone who has been born of God, no one's left behind, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? My friends, consider the scale. It's enormous. Three times John says that God provides a victory, what? That has overcome the world. Not just Gaza Strip or one cruel dictator from years ago. Not just racism or sexism or any singular ism. Not just cancer or MS or AIDS. Oh, and not just greed or indifference or porn or gambling. If, consider this, if God's great victory only covered the top 10 problems in our world, we would be deliriously happy. And we'd all be driving Priuses. But the victory of God is not limited in any way. For the victory of God has secured, that, that God has secured for us this victory and it's cosmic in scale. Listen, it's, 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 it's nothing short of God one day remaking all things and heaven coming down to earth in perfect, renewed glory. And, and our fallen natures, redeemed and renewed. Do you long for that day? I do. Listen, this is swords beaten into plowshares forever scale of victory. This is lion lays down with the lamb, black with white, rich with poor, scale of victory. This is, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Scale of victory. This is that great seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent, Satan, scale of victory. And so to understand this is to be encouraged. And think this through. John isn't simply passing along. John, John isn't simply like making up this encouragement for us. He is doing what? He's passing along something to us that he heard from Jesus. Remember on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he, Jesus gathered all of his disciples and he told them many things that were to come. And then, then here's what he said. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. Now, Jesus is either a delusional narcissist or he is the son of God who won the great victory that overcomes the world and will one day to return to usher in the final installment. Do you understand this? Listen, you can have the combined earthly victories of Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Michael Jordan all in your one short life. But if you're not part of God's cosmic victory, well, vapor, dust, 
meaningless. It is. Oh, you say, oh, I'm going to leave behind a legacy that'll live on. Baloney. Do you not know that when Jesus returns, all, all that is not part of his, of God's victory of grace will perish. All prideful, man-glorifying accomplishments will be but fuel for the fire, and they will be rightly consumed by God's holy justice and judgment. And yet for some reason, the world applauds worldly victory. And billions want victory like that. And we, sadly, Christians, we can desire these earthly victories too, which is why, remember earlier in John chapter 2, John wrote these words. Remember what he said? Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And then listen, and the world is passing away. It's dying with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, let's be sure that we do not judge those who love the world and things in this world. Instead, let us pity them, for they do not know what they're doing. The God of this age has blinded them and caused them to seek victory in the things of this world. And also, though, let us not be envious. Let us not covet their supposed victories, for sadly, nothing, nothing they stand upon will endure. In the end, all earthly victory will simply become a pile of vain, godless glory-seeking, which will only weigh the scales of sin against them. And if left unrepented, will damn them for all eternity. So let us live in this world with sober minds. Listen, let us know that our king and his kingdom are not of this world. But one day, Christ and his kingdom will be all that this world knows. John wants his readers to see how profound the victory is. It already belongs to those who are of the new birth from heaven. And listen, John wants us to process this truth. This overcoming life that Jesus died to give you is yours now. It's not something you have to wait for. It's not for the age to come only. Two of the three occurrences of the verb overcome, which is based on the nekao, which is based on the, the uh, Nike, the, the noun. Two of the occurrences are in the present tense, active voice which means it's a present, ongoing reality, not future only, but here and now, and for always to come. Christian, understand this. God's victory has begun in you already. And so what does this mean? It means, Christians, we are overcomers now, and that your life has absolute meaning and purpose now. Think about it. Whereas Woody Allen, sadly, lives terrified 
that all that he accomplishes will be annihilated at his death, you, because your death is in Christ's hands, are able to live with joy, knowing that everything you accomplish in faith will not just barely make it into heaven, but it will be the very gemstones the heavenly kingdom will be built upon. Someone once asked Martin Luther, if you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I would plant a tree. Try to wrap your heads around this, my friends. Any and all of your dying unto self so that Christ may live through you, it's all part of God's victory over this world. Every time you say no to sin and yes to righteousness, this is the victory of God that overcomes the world. Every time you turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, this is the victory of God that overcomes the world. Every time, every time your gentle answer turns away wrath, that's the victory of God that overcomes the world. Every time you leave houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or, or lands for Jesus' sake. That is the victory of God that overcomes the world. Every time you heal racism, that's the victory of God that overcomes the world. Every time you feed the poor, clothe them, that's the victory of God that overcomes the world. And it's being manifested in you now. The kingdom is here. It's not just in our midst, it's in us. Listen, when you attach your life to Christ and live for his victory to manifest itself in your life, you are living out what John is saying here. You are by faith overcoming the world. Now, of course, it's really God overcoming the world through you by the power of the Holy Spirit, but you get my point, right? Now, listen. Talk about an epic life. Seriously. Christian, your life is not part of the cosmic victory of God over sin and death. <laughs> Talk about encouragement. Your life has absolute meaning. Gates and Musk and Jordan hold nothing over you. Listen, you can, be, you can be the weakest of faith Christian who has ever walked the earth, but your life is now a triumph of God's grace. You are part of the biggest victory ever. And so let us remember who we are. John wrote in chapter 2. Remember, this letter would have been all, read all at one time. We Christians would be breaking up into five verses each week. Remember, John wrote in chapter 2, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, dearly cherished children of God, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. We are God's children now. We have received this new birth. It's ours. My friends, let's wrestle with this truth to the point in which it finally amazes us. If you have been born of God, then you are a new creation. Or as Yoda would say, a new creation you are. 
The future glory of the future age has come and it's broken into not just this world, but it's broken into you and into me. And if this is true, it changes everything, right? Does it not? We are now petri dishes of new creation to manifest into this world the goodness of knowing God and being remade in his righteousness. Petri dishes. Yes, Christ will return. He's coming again. But in a true and meaningful way, Christ is here now. The hope of glory is here now. and He's in us. So as we meditate on the Lord's Supper, let's take a minute to ponder just what earthly victories you just might need to either cast aside or have Jesus purified. And let us rejoice that we're part of the greatest victory ever. And let us cast aside every sin that so easily entangles. And let us run the race of faith that our Lord has marked off for each of us. Let's pray. It is all true. Your word says so. And the spirit of Jesus in us testifies that these words are true and we, we wish that we experience them more fully. We thank you that you're patient with us. We're thankful that sanctification, though slow, it does take us somewhere. May we who have meditated on this word this morning, may we have great encouragement that our lives are powerfully lived out upon this earth for your glory that your overcoming of this world is, is in many ways in and through us. We long for that day when we see you face to face, Jesus, when, when, when faith will be replaced with sight and our praises will be all the more full of joy and delight. Until then, help us on this earth to honor you in all we do, we pray. Amen.